time that we're chatting with each other uh, that you know we'll have worked things out. Um, so, uh, a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, where my handle is Stephen Wardell. Our guest today is Alfred Poor, the health tech futurist. Alfred is a keynote speaker and a health technology expert with an international reputation. You can follow him on Twitter at Alfred Poor and also on LinkedIn. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is what's working in consumer digital health, new technologies, products, and business models that are gaining traction. First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll talk for about 40 minutes. After that, I'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account with call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. You can also email me questions at stephen at wardelladvisorsllc.com. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or press the website's call-in button to indicate that you'd like to speak up and join the discussion. So, Alfred, thank you so much for joining. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, Alfred Poor. I'm actually based here in Havertown, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia proper, and um, been a technologist for many, many years, wrote for PC Magazine for over 20 years. But in the past 10 years, I've been focusing on health technology, especially wearable and mobile devices for health and medical applications. That's great. Um, well, so first we'll start talking about uh, the macro outlook. So for better or for worse, this is more and more important to the innovation economy and to digital health. Um, it wasn't so important two years ago because we had a great macro environment. Um, but now uh, people in the innovation economy are seeing uh, you know, problems and obstacles because of the macro economy. And what they're looking for is a pathway to things getting better. So um, speaking of that, the Fed met this week and they announced today that they're not raising rates today as expected. And so the federal funds rate continues to be the range of 5.00 to 5.25. However, against expectations and more pessimistically, um, Jerome Powell said that they expect to do uh, up to two more rate raises later this year. So the, the after 10 consecutive rate raises after FOMC meetings, this is the first time they haven't raised rates. And that is reflective of progress against inflation. If they had not been making progress infl against inflation, they might have continued to raise rates. However, There'll be more FOMC meetings through the end of the year, and he said to expect that they might raise rates uh, by 25 basis points. That's a small raise. Uh, 
twice more in the coming year. So I would call that a disappointment to technologists. I, I tend to look at this from the perspective of the innovation community and the innovation community wants low rates. It wants both low rates and low inflation, um, but higher rates are worse than the current level of inflation. And so, uh, and the prospect of rising rates creates uncertainty in valuation. It creates uncertainty in the valuation of the NASDAQ. It creates uncertainty for investors. Um, and so this is a setback. So I have a public thesis out there that says that things are going to look good for company leaders sooner rather than later. So I think my, my old thesis was that things are going to start looking good for company leaders in the investment community uh, in the third and fourth quarters of this year. That's four quarters ahead of market consensus. Market consensus is more pessimistic than I am. And they're saying it's going to be it's going to be out four or five, six quarters before we things start looking better. So with the Fed saying this, I'm going to have to push back my optimistic view by at least a quarter. So now instead of the environment looking better in the third quarter, starting in September, I'm thinking, sorry, starting in this quarter in June, I'm thinking that it may be the fourth quarter or later that we start to see the investment environment for young digital health companies really improve. Um, so that's my take. Yep. If I can, can offer... Uh... A little news from the trenches. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, I was speaking at an event, a digital health event that was uh, put on by a group here in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia area uh, capital and technology uh, group um, and fascinating program. But part of it included a pitch session and a discussion with uh, three people from different uh, investor groups that were intended. And everybody, the consensus was that there's a much more difficult environment for raising funds for startups these days. But the, the takeaway that I found particularly interesting is they are less inclined to make big investments, especially at the early stage, than they were two, three years ago. You know, two, three years ago, they would throw money at anything that sounded you know remotely plausible. Today, they kind of want to wait till you're past the startup stage they don't really want to get in until you know you've established things and gone a little further and furthermore they're looking to make much smaller investments more over small you know smaller increments over time rather than plopping a whole lot of big big hunk of cash cash in the beginning yep. that that's great to hear i think that that aligns a lot with what our our ceos and our audience are are you know are seeing that, that that's a good way to put it and, and helpful to get that sort of refresh so thank you um yeah. uh so um looking at other macro factors um so um uh you know inflation we've had mostly flat or good news about inflation lately that that's good because roaring inflation out of control inflation is terrible for the innovation economy um had very positive job reports recently, including the last one uh, on June second. Um, showed uh, was what showed employers adding jobs at a rate twice as fast as expectations. People are actually doubting those numbers a little bit; they're almost too good. Um, interestingly, there's a bifurcation here, which is that that you don't necessarily see that in tech. In tech, you see the shedding of jobs in tech and digital health, but we're adding jobs in other places in the economy. Um, uh, so recession. Um, so uh, we have uh, market observer Jason Calacanis is calling us as in a Fed-caused recession right now, especially for tech, also for digital health. Um, 
And meanwhile, uh, Fidelity and Lawrence Summers, he's a prominent economist that I follow, are saying that it's coming. We're at the end of an expansionary period, at the beginning of a contractionary period, hasn't hit yet, and they expect it will be shallow, um, which is uh, relatively good news, could hit by the end of the year or early next year. So any thoughts on um, inflation, jobs, recession, what it means for, for the innovation economy? Well, you know, I think one of the facts, especially for the, the startups, is that it's really shoestring operations for most of these companies. And, uh, you know, if, it, if it's difficult to find good employees to help with your build out, if it's, um, you know, a tough market to, 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 for hiring and retention, um, I think that's sort of a hidden anchor on, on the progress. You know, it's less obvious. Um, than the money and, and interest rates and things like that. But it's getting the people and being able to keep them and through that difficult startup period uh, and, and so that they can actually get the company to a point where it's producing something that they can sell. Mm -hmm. And at, at, at the early stage, um, you know, you, you may find that, uh, that you can get uh, talent that you couldn't get two years ago, uh, possibly, yep. where, you know, it's a, a, a hot, uh, engineer. It was very obvious to them to work at, at Google and then Google laid off 30,000 people. Uh, and then uh, now, now you can get that engineer maybe. Um, so uh, th there's a saying that uh, oftentimes the best young companies are built during recessions or during tough times. Um, and the trouble is, is that not a lot of companies make it through the tough times. So it's, it's not consoling to hear that as an <laughs> innovator. Um, yeah. uh, you you want to be one of those who made it at the end and therefore has a wonderful, you know, uh, runway to success. Um, but well, the odds, the odds are kind of long, no matter when you start. Yeah. You know? I mean, so it, it's, it's a, you know, it's it, it, tough to survive or really tough to survive. So then um, let's see, uh, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll pause for a second to take a look at, at the IPO window. So, uh, along with what we want to see, two key milestones that we're tracking for our audience. One is the Fed stopping raising rates. So there had been a suggestion that the Fed really was stopping raising rates. Um, and now we're hearing them say they may raise rates twice more by the end of the year. So that is a disappointment. Um, and that pushes out our optimistic forecast. So the second is the IPO window. So with the IPO window, what we're looking for is for companies in tech and healthcare to IPO, even though the IPO window is technically closed, but some companies can still get out. And then we're looking for their stock price to go up and stay up. That's what we'd like to see. So tracking that, we had Kenview on May 4th IPO at $22 a share and is up um, uh, and has stayed up. Uh, and so that is what Kenview was the consumer division of J&J includes Tylenol and Band-Aid uh, brands in it. Um, and so a lot of people are looking at that and saying that suggests that there's, there's a lot of pent up demand for IPOs um, so, uh, by buy siders who want to buy them for the potential alpha in them. And there's a lot of supplies as well in the form of unicorns who have been around eight plus years. Uh, VCs want to get their money out of them. They theoretically have values of over a billion um, and they want to get out into the, to, into the public markets. So um and so people are watching the Kenview IPO, and it's a good signal. It's a good uh, uh, harbinger. Um, 
And now we want to see more. And so what we're keeping our eye on is that ARM is still planning to IPO. They're the UK chip maker. Um, and they're seeking to position themselves as an artificial intelligence stock since that there's been a boom in, in AI stocks. Um, that suggests they may go for sooner rather than later because you never know when the bottom's going to drop out of these, out of these booms. Um, uh, and um, then also Instacart has said that it will go public. It's still slated to go public. Not, neither have gone public since the last time that we checked in on them. Um, but if these two go public and then there's usually an IPO discount, so you're looking for them to see some lift of like 15% after they go public and then stay up, then I think you'll see the, uh, the, 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 the IPO window will be open if that happens. We're looking for those pieces to fall into place. And then we'll see a lot of tech unicorns go out and then we'll start to see digital health unicorns go out. And that in turn will complete the cycle of funding and allow successful VC funds to raise new funds and put new money to work as well. So Alfred, any, any thoughts on the IPO window being closed and whether we may see it open? Um, well, I, you know, it's interesting because I spend more time on the technology than the investment side. So I'm not as aware of uh, what some of the, the IPO plans are or you know, recent history is. No, no problem. Um, well, good. Well, so next we'll move on to the news of the week. Uh, and so here for our audience, if you would like to to send us some stories in the chat, uh, you know, send us some stories and we'll react to the news stories, you know, um, that, that you send us. But I'll, I'll mention a few from the world of digital health and then I'll, I hope uh, Alfred will tell us about his favorite stories of the week from the world of uh, consumer tech and consumer digital health. Um, so the first is um, that uh, New York-based Pomelo Care, um, a virtual maternity care company, raised $30 million, $33 million in a Series A from A16Z. So I tried to find out who the partner was on this deal. I couldn't find out in time for the show. Um, but very interesting. And this is, it's being called a virtual maternity care platform. So this, I think this falls into the bucket of what's being called hybrid care, or it's, we're talking about a company that offers care. It doesn't sell necessarily software. It's to enterprises. It sells care to, uh, to end users. Um, and, uh, uh, and also it's virtual. So that, that, that's this hybrid model uh, of, you know, uh, of both virtual and uh, real world uh, or, or all virtual. Um, and so what I see here is this is part of a trend of VCs liking care and liking virtual care and liking hybrid care that continues. So a lot of theses that VCs liked in the past three years have not worked out and VCs are not continuing to invest in them and that's too bad. But here's one that is working out and VCs are still continuing to invest in is, uh, is virtual care. It also focuses on maternity. Femtech is hot, has been hot for five plus years. Um, and so this is, is, a, is a vote by A16Z in favor of those trends. Uh, any thoughts, Alfred? So, yeah, I, I totally agree that maternity, maternity care, um, pre, and, and, and pre-delivery, delivery, and, and, and post-delivery is huge in this country. I'm not sure how many people listening in are aware, but it's something like we rank 23rd out of 23 industrialized nations in terms of uh, uh, maternal and infant mortality. And it, I think we're like 46th in the world, which is just abysmal. And at the same time, we're number one 
and our spend on maternal care. So there's, we're not getting what we're paying for. Um, it's, it's a huge problem. As a result, however, this is a very crowded field. Um, you know, you've, you've got the, the, the mention here of um, Pamela Care. Yesterday, the, the company that pitched at this event I, I was at was a, pretty much a carbon copy. Hybrid care, um, you know, remote patient monitoring. Uh, uh, one important twist on that one, which I don't know about Pamela Care, but mental health support is one of the key focuses for a lot of these services. Um, it's not just the, the physical health, but the mental health of, of the mother uh, throughout the whole process is a big issue. Um, so I have a feeling that uh, this particular maternal health uh, segment is gonna be very crowded. And I think that investors need to be careful to look at what's in the basket um, because it's not, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's not straightforward. And the other issue is you can deliver a great benefit, but unless you can prove that you're saving money, um, you don't have a business. And your audience for that is not the doctors, it's not the healthcare systems, it's the payers. And if you can't get the payers on board to support that program, you've got no business. So. Um, it's great to put a lot of money into these programs. Heaven knows we need to do a better job. And a lot of these early stage companies look like they have some really good solutions to it. But yet it's incomplete until you've got a, a pay code for it and, and payers who are willing to shell out for it. I'll also add, you know, thank you. Um, so I'll also add that this deal looks like a classic um, digital health deal, which, which is great. Other than the fact that it's a virtual care company, usually digital health deals are, are funding software companies, not care companies. But other than that, this is a classic digital health deal. And that's great. We want more of these. Very often these days, we're seeing young companies that have cobbled together some kind of funding, uh, not from leading VCs. Uh, and good for them that that CEO should get an extra golf clap uh, for having pulled that together. Um, but these days we're seeing in a week, we're seeing as many deals as we used to see in a day uh, in the in 2021, yeah. or we're seeing fewer deals than we used to see in a day in 2021. So it's nice to see A16Z, you know, actively investing. I want to see more of these. Another interesting thing is this kind of a battle going on between what I'm, I'm going to call the white coats versus the turtlenecks. If you hear of a software company in digital health, it's probably being run by turtlenecks, by, by Steve Jobs types. Um, uh, and if you hear of a care company in healthcare, it's probably being run by white coats. Um, but uh, it turns out that those white coats, they have a lot of market power. And of course, they're, they are um, uh, registered um, you know, clinicians. Uh, so they, have, they, can, they, have, they can effectively bar non-registered clinicians from providing care. Uh, they, you need to have you know, a doctor in your business in order to provide care, among other things. But those businesses for decades run by doctors have been terrible buyers of technology. Terrible, absolutely terrible. And so what you're increasingly seeing is companies like Pomelo Care, and I don't know the exact details here, but you're seeing digital health companies that are not selling software, they're selling care, and they're backed by VCs, and they're run by the technologists, they're run by the turtlenecks, and they're eating the, the white coats' lunch, and they're turning the white coats, the doctors, into non-essential mid-level employees. And that's because those doctors were in charge for decades and could never buy and use technology. 
Um, and so at, at a certain point, the technologists say, how hard is it to start a medical practice? They, they won't buy our, our software. How hard is it to start a medical practice? It turns out it's not hard to start a medical practice. So that, that's what's going on here is the, the, uh, the black turtle, we're watching the black turtlenecks eat the lunch uh, of, the, um, of the white coats. Uh, so um, the next one is uh, New York-based UvoCare, a tech-enabled platform to support federally qualified healthcare centers, announced it closed a $20 million Series A round led by Mastery Ventures. So that's Fatima Hussein there, with participation from Aviate, Alley Corp, New York Ventures, Route 66 Ventures, HLM Ventures, Social Innovation Fund, and Vamos Ventures. So uh, within this group, uh, I think Alley Corp and HLM Ventures count, who are uh, minor syndicate members, count for mainstream national venture funds. Um, and it, it's great to see this get funded. It's great to see this round um, uh, you know, uh, happen. Uh, so this is another win. Um, and you know, tech-enabled platform to support federally qualified healthcare centers. That sounds like a niche to me. I don't, I don't necessarily see a big this indicative of other trends in the sector. But it's nice to see a big syndicate. It's nice to see a syndicate that contains leading, leading venture funds. Too many lead investors are sitting on the bleachers. The CEOs have jumped in the pool. They're swimming in the pool and saying the water's great. They're saying come on in. They're saying we could use some help. And then those investors have dry powder and they're still sitting on the bleachers, not jumping in. Um, and so I want them to jump in. It's nice to see when they do it. They're just not doing it enough. But this looks like a great syndicate. So any thoughts on this, uh, Alfred? Um, no, I think you covered that that pretty well. I, I, I would suggest that the majority of the early stage med tech uh, startups still are white coat initiated. Um, uh, and from what I see, um, I think that the people who are getting involved in these kinds of programs are more business savvy than what we saw five, 10 years ago. Um, I, I think they're coming with a more complete package, a more complete understanding of what they're going to need to do to put, put it across the line for, for the investors. So th that's a really good point. And the distinction I'd make here is what I'll call FDA risk. So mm -hmm. if you're on the side of selling an EMR to a hospital. Hospitals are, you don't need FDA clearance. Hospitals are terrible buyers of technology. Um, health plans are terrible buyers of technology. <laughs> uh, pharma tech, the pharma commercial budget buying CRM software, they're, they're terrible buyers. Of, they're actually relatively good, but they're still compared to others, terrible buyers of technology. So this is when I say that the, um, you know, the, the, the black turtlenecks are eating the lunch of the, of the white coats. Um, uh, so, you know, a five doc uh, cardiology practice is a terribly run business. Um, it has, it, it has a, a fabulous high margin product that most people in the world can't sell. So they have, they have a lot of market power because they have medical degrees and specialties and board certifications, um, but they're, they run terrible business. And so at a certain point, you know, someone like one medical group comes along and says, how hard, why has no one ever built a nationally branded, you know, outstanding yeah. medical practice with, with its own software system? And how hard is it to do that? It's not that hard. How is it hard is it to raise the money? It's not that hard. Why don't we do it where the White Coast have failed to do it, you know, for 70 years? Um, for, well, for, so, for healthcare delivery, one of the important trends is, is what I'm calling neighborhood healthcare. Um, and the retailers are the ones who are stepping into this in a big way. Um, certainly the pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, they're creating walk-ins and, and, and other healthcare delivery 
tools, but you have Best Buy getting involved in this. You've got, you know, some some people who 10 years ago, we would what would they be doing in, in, in healthcare? I'm seeing the hospitals and healthcare systems responding to this. Um, and so they're putting their own walk-in kind of, uh, of satellites all over, uh, certainly here in the Philadelphia area, it's happening all over. So there's, um, I, I think that the, the retail giants have shown the way, but I think that others have, you know, the traditional, more traditional healthcare systems have recognized the opportunity and, and answered the challenge to some degree. I, I have no idea how it's going to play out, but, um, it, 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 it goes beyond, I mean, it's definitely playing into what you're talking about, about coming up with a, a broader brand solution than just a bunch of isolated practices. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that's great. Thanks. Um, so, uh, and then by the way, to, to finish that thought, so there is also the FDA risk side. So the FDA risk side is diagnostic device and therapeutic. Uh, and over there, I, I would expect it to remain as doctor centric as before. It's, it's not the case, you know, it, it, you have to get only some of these products are, have chips and software and data in them. Some don't like stents don't and balloons don't. Um, and uh, so, but you still have to go through this arduous uh, FDA process, uh, which is going to be guided as, as much by physicians in the future as it was in the past. So, uh, so, I, so um, th th that's a great insight about medtech. Um, so, lastly, Syntax Health, uh, an enterprise value-based care company for health plans and providers, um, was launched with 7.5 million seed funding. Uh, the platform was built uh, by um, CEO. Rachel Jones, and also by Accelerator Redesign Health. Redesign Health is a very interesting, um, you know, well-funded um, accelerator with a great uh, business model in New York. Um, so it's great to see uh, another company uh, raise its seed funding uh, and be backed and, and, and co-created by Redesign Health. Um, so, um, uh, and the accelerator model is a somewhat challenged model. We've seen accelerators come and go in digital health. Uh, it takes so long, it's so risky and takes so long for young companies to make it that it's harder to have an accelerator in digital health than it would be in say gaming uh, or B2C or something. Um, so uh, it's good to see that. So Alfred, any thoughts on Syntax Health or any any stories? You well, I, into well, I would say about the, the accelerator thing. I mean, I've been, working with accelerators, reaching out to them to, to, uh, to help the, uh, the founders be more effective in their online presentations. And I've discovered, you know, you can't swing a cat without hitting a, an accelerator these days, especially in technology. And then especially within that medical and health related technology, um, they just seem to be everywhere. Uh, and, uh, you're, you're absolutely right about the long tail. It's this is not a, a, a quick flip kind of proposition, but you know you you have a, a number of companies, Comcast, Mayo Clinic, you know, a bunch of them who are involved in these kinds of, uh, and certainly up in your area in Boston, there's a lot of healthcare organizations that are in, have accelerator programs. Um, they understand what the business is about. They understand how how it's going to take time and they understand the kinds of resources that these people are going to going to need to be able to, to make it. I mean, it, the, as we both know, the biggest problem for founders is they don't know what they don't know and helping them understand what's missing in their puzzle for them to be successful is, is something that accelerators 
are excellent at. And, and so I, I expect they're going to continue to play a big role in, in producing companies that survive. And so while we're on that topic, just to name some of the accelerators. So I, th I think the biggest and most successful in digital health has been startup health. Uh, and they have an interesting model where they give you resources and cash. Um, and they, they have uh, built a lot of the relationships where they can show you off to hospital buyers of products or to VC buyers of equity um, and help you uh, and help you meet their standards and get those meetings and deliver. So I like the startup health model. It's been around, it's been quite successful. And they have great festivals where they have their startups do pitches at the big, um, the big digital health conferences. Uh, so th that's a great one. Redesign health is really interesting because I think they, they do a bigger, uh, they play a bigger role in envisioning what startups there need to be and then helping to co-build them. So, and sometimes that is given the name of a studio, but it, it, it falls under the, uh, the, the, the accelerator super category. Um, then there's TechCrunch, which is very famous for having classes that go through the process. And TechCrunch seems to, it, it's a bunch of um, B2B and B2C technologists in the Bay Area. And it doesn't seem to really emphasize healthcare all that much. There will be healthcare companies that apply, get in and go through the process, um, but that's not been what one of their strengths is known for. Uh, and then I think Mass Challenge is doing a lot of what TechCrunch does uh, instead. And it does have a strong healthcare track and it was born out of Massachusetts uh, and gone global, um, but it, it has a kind of a class um, type uh, program where, where they admit people and push them through a process. And, and it does have a robust healthcare um, but it's not nearly as well known as TechCrunch. So those are some of the, um, you know, some of the uh, accelerator programs. Um, yeah, my my advice is look at home first. Um, it can be, you know, find out what the opportunities are with with these accelerators and and incubators in your own community, because um, most cities now, you know, if you've got a university hospital, there's probably a med tech um, accelerator program of some sort local, and it's just easier to connect with them and, and, you know, not have to travel across the country to connect with your program. I mean, a lot of this could be done virtually, but still <clears throat> that, that in-person networking kind of thing can be really good. One other thing that I would mention, a lot of my interest has been in the, the devices. Um, and one of the things that I've talked to a lot of the companies that help with the design and manufacturing of these things for, for, for startups and, and big companies as well. And one of the things that I find founders have a blind spot to is manufacturability. They don't, you know, they breadboard it together. They say, well, yeah, okay. So now I have to do is put that on a strap and, you know, we're, we're all set. Well, no, you know, the, 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 the vacuum injection molding of the cases and how you're gonna lay out the circuits and how it's gonna, the, the, the circuits are gonna actually be assembled there's a good way and a bad way. And, you know, if you don't make the right choices, it can, it can blow up the, you know, the, the reliability, the cost of manufacturing, I mean, there's all kinds of problems. And so, you know, these accelerators that have the contacts to help you meet with the people who actually know what it takes to, to produce these things at scale uh, can, can head off a lot of problems early on. Yep, that's great. Thank you. So we have a question from the audience. Uh, Paula in the audience asks, what about a VC or company that helps you to find investments for a breastfeeding app? Any suggestions? Um, so 
because this is a consumer oriented show, I'm, so one of the key early questions is who is buying? Who's the purchaser? Who makes the decision? Who pays the money for this app? Um, and because you, you came to a consumer oriented show, I'm going to assume that you're, you're literally selling this app to the public. So maybe this app is $7 on the Apple app store, something like that. I'm just imagining. Um, and so for that, um, you know, th that's an interesting issue. Uh, so th the first level of this is if you want, if, if you, if you want to stress the healthcare aspect of this, um, then you're talking about digital health investors who invest in consumer applications. And that's a small group that is less than 5% of digital health investors invest in consumer. There's about 10 major funds that do this. I'll mention two. One is Mayfield. Mayfield is, has a consumer division and a digital health division and their digital health division invests in consumer digital health. So the second I'll mention is Sevenwire. So Sevenwire is, is famous for investing in Livongo, among other things. It has Greg Tolman and Lee Shapiro there. Uh, and they actually raised a fund, a consumer fund, uh, as a mainstream digital health fund that invests in a lot of uh, selling to enterprises. They raised a consumer fund. So I would, I would seek to, you know, to interact with their, with the partners behind their consumer fund. So there, there, there's two answers. The next is that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's about uh, 15 to 20 early stage funds that um, invest in digital health. Uh, and it would be a small matter for them to do a consumer deal. They invest across, if you're early stage, you're investing across the board, you seldom specialize. And so, whereas the big funds are much more specialized. Uh, and so the early stage funds, you know, will often say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll invest in a consumer play and then we'll help you with the next step after that. Um, so there's the early stage uh, funds. And, and then lastly, there's actually consumer tech. So consumer tech is enormous and there's many VCs there and they are not thinking healthcare. They're thinking, is there a big consumer market for this? Um, and we, you know, we just did a whole bunch of consumer deals. They're thinking about like, what's your marketing strategy? Who's your audience? How many of them are there? Do, are, are they spendy on this topic? You know, how, how are you, are you reaching them effectively? But they're not thinking about healthcare. So you, you can dip your toe in, in consumer digital health where there's about 10 funds, or you can, dip your toe in consumer tech, which has an enormous number of funds. It's one of the biggest parts of the whole economy, B2C and B2B. It's the whole B2C world. So Alfred, any thoughts on, uh, on Paul's question? A couple things. Um, I will infer from the way the question was phrased and the fact that there's a B2C strategy is that you're not looking at a medical device, that you're not going to be creating a digital therapeutic design to treat a specific condition. Um, if that's the, if I'm correct on that, then I would encourage you to think about getting a Eureka Park booth at CES. CES in the past, oh, seven, eight years has become ground zero for consumer health. Um, it's, it's the place to be seen. And uh, you'll find lots of investors, uh, big and small, walking the floors and it can be a, a, a very affordable way to, to get some exposure. On the other hand, if you are looking at something that's going to be a medical device as an app, um, I would encourage you to uh, get in touch with the uh, Digital Therapeutics Association. There's an industry group now for digital therapeutics. And I imagine that they would probably be a terrific source of guidance, information, 
not just about potential investors, but the path that you'll need to follow to, to be able to deliver a product. And so you know, not to dwell too long on this, but Paula also follows up that there is a channel here to sell the um, breastfeeding app B2C, direct to consumer, and also B2B through insurers and employers. So that insurer employer angle, that's really interesting because that is the mainstream of digital health. That is investors who've invested in companies like Teladoc and Livongo and Quantum and Accolade and, uh, and uh, Hinge. And that is a really big, rich pool of investors. Um, and uh, they, you know, there's about 70 to 90 partners in this space who invest. Uh, so much bigger than the number of partners who invest in consumer digital health. Um, and this is funds like Flare uh, in Boston or Orbimed in New York uh, or A16Z in, in and uh, uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, and so that if, if and so the, the, the trick, though, is that um, is that you have to commit. Typically, you, you need a lead investor. If your lead investor is going to be a lead investor for um, for a product sold to the employer and payer channel, um, then your company is going to be weighted in that direction. You're going to get a board member who wants to see the company going in that direction. Um, whereas if you're if your lead investor is a, is a um, consumer digital health investor, then that investor is going to want to see that money in that fundraise spent on going down the consumer channel. Um, so you can seek to fundraise from both, but you have to be willing to move the company in the direction of, of whoever winds up being your lead investor. So um, let's see the, uh, so the great question uh, Paula. So, um, uh, let's see. Any other stories from the week, Alfred? Well, the big one, uh, Apple, with their, they're calling it extended reality, but it's really VR goggles, virtual reality goggles with cameras that can then bring the, you know, your, your surroundings into that world. Um, and like AI, which is, you know, anything AI is a hot topic these days. Um, anything Apple is automatically interesting. Um, I would have to say that Apple's product is, a, to some degree, a validation of the of the segment, but it's so the wrong product at the wrong time for the wrong mission. Um, I I just I I cannot see it going anywhere, which is a shame because VR in healthcare is making enormous strides um, in mental health. It's helping people, I mean, these are all proven, you know, solid studies showing that there are real benefits to be had, but helping people with all kinds of anxiety, stress, depression, kinds of, kinds of mental health issues, um, helps women uh, who are going through hot flashes, either for age or for, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a result of treatment for for different conditions but more than that um it's been shown to be helpful in pain management uh to the extent that vr treatments for pain management last well beyond the session while you're that you're going through it and uh, the studies are showing that it's every bit as good or even better than opioids at helping patients manage their pain uh, which to me is huge. And 
one of my favorite applications though of all is somebody came up with a VR application for kids who are going to be getting uh, an injection. Primarily it was about around the uh, COVID uh, vaccinations, but for any child getting an injection, it can be a, a, a anxious time for them. Um, so they're underwater, they're swimming around, they're little fish swimming around, the fish are nibbling at their, their hands and their arms, and then it, it just takes away all the stress from when the injection actually happens. But for me, the, the real punchline for a lot of these pediatric VR, VR applications is you end up three, treating three patients at the same time. Because when the parents see that the child isn't anxious, they relax. And it has a huge benefit for the parents, even though they're not actually actively involved in the treatment. So VR is great, um, but I have to say I'm, I'm very underwhelmed by what, what Apple came up with. Uh, that's a great overview. And I was also, I, I looked forward to that announcement. I'm glad uh, that Apple's getting into the VR headset uh, uh, category. I think long-term this category has the potential to be as big as activity trackers and probably, you know, maybe um, nearly as big as the smartphone, probably can't ever be quite as big as the smartphone, but maybe even as big as the, the laptop uh, category. Um, and uh, I actually have a uh, Oculus, a Meta Oculus Quest 2 headset. Um, and I play games with my kids with this headset and they can be very entertained on a, on a cold day. They can do fitness stuff on it. They can also play other games on it. Um, and, uh, and it requires, um, a, uh, it requires, uh, two controllers in your hands to, to work. Um, and, uh, I was very impressed with Apple's version. So the first thing about it was that it, 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 it seems to just, uh, you can put it on the, the form factor and, the, and when they work around putting it on your head makes it a little easier to put it on, get it uh, rightly positioned and take it off. Whereas there's a little more adjustment is required with the, um, with the Facebook uh, or with the, with the Oculus. Um, that was the one. And second is that somehow Apple managed to drop the two controllers. So you use your fingers and, and I heard some number, like they put nine cameras on the outside of the, of the visor so that it could accurately see your fingers and use your fingers. And I think that's a killer app and that's gonna, that's a winner. And I think we're ultimately gonna see all headsets drop their, um, you know, drop their uh, their uh, controllers in the future. Um, and uh, so all that is good, but I heard a joke that's stuck with me, a bad joke about this, which is that um, Apple built the uh, VR, um, uh, the VR goggles for the non-gamer. Um, and so the reason that's a joke is that Apple famously doesn't like gamers, um, but the core market for a headset has got to be gamers. Gamers are the people who are gonna drive this market. And so Apple went and built a higher priced, more deluxe version, not for gamers. Um, and gamers are the only people who are willing to pioneer and wear a nerdy looking headset and be uncomfortable while wearing it uh, for the extra benefit today of playing a better game. Um, and other people are less willing that they want the technology to evolve more. Um, be, and before they're and so socially and technologically, um, and so uh, Apple went and, and built uh, for the for the, the wrong an overpriced device for the wrong market, a three times as expensive device for the wrong market for the non gamer. Anyway, yeah. I don't know what, what well, you think. I, 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 I would agree completely. I mean, it, um, I think that there's a market for a thirty five hundred dollar VR goggle set, and again, it goes into the medical treatment 
part of it. You know, if you're helping agoraphobics get over the, you know, the fear of going, go, going outside, that's worth a lot of money. And if this could be more effective than some of the other treatments, if it can be faster, less expensive, you know, all those benefits, um, especially if this, these are things that can be done at home without tying up the time of a medical professional. Uh, there's a lot of benefit in that. I'm just not sure that the Apple benefits are unique enough um, to warrant paying the extra over over an Oculus. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is gesture control, gesture controls, sensing technology is very advanced. Um, you know, one of the things about Apple is Apple will take stuff that exists elsewhere and present it as its own. Um, there's, there are a lot of really good companies out there that are doing amazing things with, with um, gesture controls. Uh, a lot of it's for people with uh, impairment who can't operate a keyboard or a joystick or something like that. It, it has other ap medical applications as well. Um, so it's not as unique as Apple might want, want you to think. If, if you're interested in, in that gesture control interface, I'd encourage you to look around because there's a lot of very good solutions out there. That's great. Um, well, thank you. So we're going to skip some of our usual topics uh, just uh, just in order to get to our, our main topic. Uh, but before we jump into our main topic, so personal notices. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll just mention that uh, my next digital health drinks night um, is tomorrow in Boston, Thursday, June 15th. 530 to 8.30 at the Liberty Hotel, convening the digital health sector of Boston together. Um, come and have a drink with us. Uh, and the theme of the evening is age tech. And we have our guest speaker is Danielle Duplin, who's the executive director of agency at CIC, which is a leading accelerator of age tech companies. Um, so, uh, and Alfred, do you have any personal notices? Absolutely. Um, and, and by the way, age tech is so important and so active and and there's a lot of holes in the age tech market that need to be filled um so I, I, that's a wonderful topic i'm glad you're going to be focusing on that um among other things i'm i'm uh, a, a mentor with founder institute and we have a chapter here in the philadelphia area and they have a program it's open to everybody you don't have to be from the philadelphia area it's open to the public um june 21st at 6 p.m. U.S. Eastern, and I'm going to be one of three speakers. And my topic is one of my favorites. It's the seven success secrets that startups can learn from the TV show Breaking Bad. So um, we have a lot of lot of fun with that. And I, it's got a long link. I, I, presumably, you'll make the, the link available in the notes. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll I'll put them in the in the room yeah. chat. Um, and so I, I guess you could say that uh, Breaking Bad, that guy was a, was an entrepreneur. He, um, he was he was. Um, I would say Walter Wright was an unwilling entrepreneur, but that he had um, amazing instincts. They didn't always serve him well, but uh, but the, he he managed to navigate a lot of the, the pitfalls successfully for for a long time. So. That's great. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, and so now we'll move on to our main topic, which is what's working in consumer digital health. Uh, and so now 
a lot of us, the consumer electronics show each year is a lot of fun, but not all of us have it as our job to go and enjoy it and maybe walk the aisles of consumer digital health at the consumer electronics show. Um, so maybe you could tell us, uh, and, and I, I remember walking the aisles and that there was this game you would play, which was what is the next sensor for consumer digital health? So to give you an idea, it used to be that you couldn't get sensors for blood pressure for consumer, that was like for clinical. But then all of a sudden the consumer grade devices that were cheap, that were plentiful, that were available with blood pressure started to come out. Um, and then there's also um, uh, blood glucose level, a very important one uh, as well. Uh, and that used to be something that was very hard to get clinical grade versions. And now it's that they're, they're still clinical grade versions, but they're more plentiful. You can get the consumer versions of them. You don't need a prescription to get, uh, you know, a plain old um, blood electronic blood glucose test. But people were wondering, is the next sensor, here's two interesting ones. And I don't think this has played out yet, but will sun exposure be the next sensor? And that was one. And the second one, was and that simply had a solar sensor and the second one i heard of was sweat sweat and stress and that was galvanic response on your skin um uh, and i don't think these have broken through they're still you know uh if you're if you're a crazy enough technologist you can get you can get that today but it's not but this combination of expecting a big market and making a cheap, high quality version of it that gets it into the consumer realm or whatever. So that's a game I've played walking the aisles on the consumer electronics show. What's the next sensor? Maybe you could tell sure. us though, what, what, as someone who goes every year, what are you seeing there uh, in general? What's cool, yeah. but also what's working? Okay. So, so according to my tracker, I did 42 miles this past January at CES in the, in the five days that I was there. So, um, there's a lot of ground to cover figuratively and literally when you go to one of these shows. But um, I'll, let me just start by going back a little bit. Um, five, six years ago, if you breadboarded a device and just put a strap on it, you had a product. About three, four years ago, it needed to be manufacturable. It needed to look nice. It needed to have, have you know, some good user interface and good design before you had a product. Starting about a year or two ago, if you didn't have reliable studies that show that, first of all, you're measuring what you think you're measuring and that what you're measuring actually has value, um, you don't have a product. And it doesn't matter whether it's just direct to consumer or whether it's, uh, you know, you're going the route for, for medical FDA clearance. Um, the market has matured to the point where you can't just throw something together and, you know, and, and, and have it, have it stick. Um, solar, I'm going to disagree that there's a potential there. It's been tried and it's been tried and it's been tried and it's been tried by, I've forgotten who the, which company it was, but it's one of the major skin lotion cosmetic companies. So if they didn't have the market, nobody does. And, um, they had a very simple little device and it, it, it disappeared almost as fast as it appeared. It, that's not going anywhere. Sweat is a very interesting, um, interesting problem because it turns out it's not very reliable 
for most biomarker applications. People have been trying, for example, to do blood glucose measurements through sweat. And, and you know, they talk a good game, but you, you, no one has that I've seen has come close to anything that's, that's been proven to be reliable and accurate. Um, there is, there is validity to measuring stress through some of the biomarkers in sweat. Um, there's also some fitness dehydration, you know, your hydration levels, your, your, um, you know, the, what kind of muscle activity you've got, um, whether you, uh, whether they're, they're strained, uh, whether, you know, run out of the energy that they've got. Um, and need to recharge. Uh, those kinds of things are real. They're, the products are out there doing those kinds of things. The big problem for the, the problem, you know, so if you're a soccer player, they want to know all this and a professional soccer player or professional football player, you know, there's money in knowing how, how your body is reacting to the, the amount of exercise you, you're, you're putting out. For the average consumer, there's not a big return. And so I think it's going to be very challenging. I mean, it, one of my big problems with sleep technology is for many, many years, they, the whole point of sleep technology was to tell you how you slept last night. Well, that's not news. I was there. <laughs> you know, I experienced it. I know how I slept last night. What I want to know is what can I do to sleep better tonight? And it's only really, Recently, that we've been seeing sleep technology start addressing those problems. So I, I'm, I'm not convinced that there's going to be a big pull for any of these kinds of solutions from the consumer um, until you can show that there's a, a, a quantifiable be benefit, a provable benefit from them. Um, but, you know, you mentioned diabetes. That's, that's the huge one. Um, and, and we've seen huge success with the continuous glucose meters, CGMs. Uh, and these are the little patches that you see advertised all the time that, um, you know, you could put on the back of your arm and you just put your phone up to it and it will give you a reading. Um, the, the cool thing about them is that they give you data throughout the day. And we're just beginning, the FDA has now cleared uh, a process to connect it to an insulin pump. Nobody's shipping that in this country yet but it but the the, the concept has been cleared um so what will happen is for those diabetics who need insulin the insulin dose will be adjusted throughout the day uh based on the readings that it gets from the sensor that you're wearing and the big advantage here is diabetes treatment is all about keeping your glucose within a range not too low not too high and so this kind of a system has already been shown to keep patients within the desired range for a much greater portion of the day than those who just go with injections and, and traditional treatment. The real payoff here is for type one diabetics, which is the, 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 the inherited, the one you're born with, and that means children. It's not acquired later in life. They start off with it. And it's a nightmare for the parents because they don't know what's going on at night and they have to wake the kid up. They have to do a pin prick, finger prick. They need to do a, you know, a blood test to make sure that, it, you know, their, their blood sugar is okay. Um, these, these CGMs 
are life changers for those families because they don't have to worry. They get an alert if the kid's out of range and they can go go deal with it, but they don't have to wake them up a couple times a night just to make sure that everything's okay. So that's a huge game changer. Now, the gold, you know, the, the, the goose that lays the golden eggs, the holy grail in all of this is to be able to measure blood sugar levels without the finger stick or without something sticking through your skin. Um, the, the CGMs these days can be worn about 14 days uh, until you have to change it out. Um, but that's still invasive. It's, you know, it's creating a wound in your skin, albeit a tiny one. Um, but so everybody's been trying to find a non-invasive way. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, Alphabet, Google's parent, had a project for years. They spent millions on it trying a smart contact lens that would measure blood glucose levels uh, from, from your tears. And they couldn't make it work because they found that the tears were not a consistent uh, way of measuring. It didn't correlate well with the, with the actual blood sugars. Um, but we have people who are using the same kinds of LED sensors that we have, you have in your fitness tracker. Um, people are using radio frequency, essentially radar waves. Um, uh, there are a number of different ways that people are, are trying to make this work, and a number of, of them say they have it working, but nobody's got FDA clearance for this. Um, and uh, if anybody's interested, they can contact me. I can give you an excellent uh, access to an excellent document that's continually updated about why these different approaches aren't working and what it's going to take to make them work. So um, my, the bottom line is if somebody tells you that they've got a non-invasive way of measuring blood sugar, I would caution you to be extremely careful and, and you know, look twice and then look again. So, you know, I think state of the art um, with Dexcom and others today is to have a really tiny filament that does go into your skin and is taped onto your body for continuous blood glucose monitoring and lasts 14 days and can be consumer applied, it can be patient applied. Um, and that's, that's wonderful compared to 10 years ago, let's say. But the killer app would be to go some, somehow go beyond that. Well, so we've got that. Need, we already have that. Because... An FDA cleared uh, Sensionics is the name of the company. I've forgotten what the name of the the. If you go to the Sensionics site, it'll direct you to the consumer site where you where you can get it. It's still a prescribed thing. It's not over the counter, but um, mm -hmm. but what it is is a tiny little sensor, grain of rice, that is injected under your skin. It's implant under your skin. And currently it's cleared for use for up to six months. And then it's easy to remove it and, you know, put another one in. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like the chip that, that body hackers are sticking under their thumbs or in Sweden, they, they have a, a chip that you can use to get on the subways and use all the public transportation. Um, but so it, it, it's a well-established device. Well, I mean, it was only, you'd had to change it out every month when it first came out. Now it's six months. I have no facts behind this, but my expectation is that this is going, this technology is going to be good for a year or more without having to change it out. Uh, it's just a matter of them having more experience and being able to show that it's as reliable over time. Um, so, you know, 
it, it's like getting an ejection once a you know twice a year, but then you just hold the sensor up to it and it reads, or you can tape a sensor to it and have continuous reading. Um, it's a um, it, it's a really cool technology, and in many ways, I think superior to the the Dexcoms and the uh, the other CGMs that you have to change out more frequently. That's great and exciting. Uh, so let let's um, we'll come back to this topic of what's new, what's working, etc. Um, but I wanted to ask our audience: feel free to ask us questions in in the room chat. Uh, and we have a question from Heather, uh, which is, what about home blood testing at home for multiple conditions? So did you see the technology? Uh, and also, what do you, if this were available for consumer purchase, um, do you think there would be a, a big demand for this? Well, so we've already got this. This is, I mean, there is, there was news that broke this week, and unfortunately, I didn't, didn't bring it with me. But there is uh, a company that just got FDA clearance for doing a variety of, of blood tests in the home for things other than diabetes. Uh, so there's, there's definitely motion there, but it doesn't have to be blood. Um, uh, one of the big things at CES in January was uh, a company had a sensor that you put in the toilet and it will do a urine sample when you use the toilet. Not only that, but it can identify different household members, so it can track different things for different family members separately. Um, and it has different cartridges that you would put in to monitor different health conditions. So um, one of my big theories uh, about health technology is that it's going to become, it will become as successful when it disappears. In other words, you don't have to fuss with it. You know, changing this out every two weeks, not a big deal, but it, you know, not having to change it out for six months is better, right? Not, you know, charging every night is a pain. If you can charge once a week or once a month, that's better. Um, and so there's, you know, these kinds of things that will be able to identify um, really important kinds of conditions uh, without you having to think about it. I mean, one of, one of the big ones is, is uh, urinary tract infections, UTIs. Um, a big problem about UTIs, especially in the elderly, is it can create symptoms that present similar to dementia. And there are just countless cases of an individual being brought to the emergency room and ending going, you know, being put in a, a, a dementia ward when a simple round of antibiotics would have cleared it up and, you know, sent them home and they would have been fine. So there's a lot of, you know, um, there's a lot of good stuff out there that we can do. Uh, and, and certainly home blood testing is part of that, but there are other tests that we can do already and um, that are coming down the pike that will, will give us more convenient, more control over our own health, help us participate without the intervention of professionals. That's great. And I'll, I'll add to what Heather mentioned. Uh, you know, she, she, Heather brought up the idea of a home blood testing for multiple conditions and something I see a lot of promise in. And I, I saw it at CES for a few years in a row. And I, I think it has broken into the mainstream is kits like 
TITOCARE. So if you don't know TITOCARE, TITOCARE is this um, clinical grade uh, FDA and CE cleared um, device that does multiple medical exams in the home, and it can be paired with um, with uh, telehealth. So uh, you know, in the past, um, you you might, and this was very obvious during COVID, the advantages of this. But in the past, you might have gone into your doctor's office, parked, paid for parking, wait in the waiting room, um, and then. Uh, and then wait in the exam room and then have a nurse come in and check some vitals on you. And then the nurse leaves. And finally, the doctor comes in, has a brief conversation with you, writes a prescription. That's your experience. Um, and then this may not be well suited if there's a COVID environment and you're trying to avoid, you know, catching or giving other people COVID. May not be well suited in an emergency context when your primary care doctor's office is closed, for example. Uh, and so you could then have a telehealth call. And the trouble with the telehealth call is that they can't give you exams over the phone. Uh, so you could have, you could talk to someone, maybe they could write you a prescription, but they can't do the exams. And so the, the title care kit and other kits, you know, lets you do a lung exam in the home. And this is patient administered. It's an electronic device that's hard to get wrong. They can do a lung exam, throat exam, ear exam, uh, you know, heart rate, uh, other factors in a kit. Um, and then there've been some intriguing business models around this one model um, is simply, uh, you know, you, you have uh, car services have people with different levels of commitment and qualifications. So you can have a car service where, uh, you know, someone has signed up to to have an SUV and to with, with handicapped access and to offer to help handicapped people get into their SUV. And they have an extra level of certification from Uber or Lyft or whatever for this. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but you could have car services where you have you know, uh, a, an extra responsible professional driving the car and they're doing regular driving, but they also have a title kit in the back, for example. And so now they can be sent uh, to, you know, a mom dealing with a kid who doesn't have the kit, but it's Friday night and it's a problem Friday night and no one's open. Um, and so, uh, but the emergency room might be open. Maybe it's far away. Maybe they don't want to go to the emergency room. Um, and so uh, they can have this car show up with the kit and, and take readings and connect that with the telehealth physician right there. Um, and then the next level is that if it's affordable enough, you could have families that have health issues um, buy their own kit and then they can do and then they can regularly do these exams. If you have a family with a, a big history with someone with a big lung problem, for example, they can do these exams there. So I you know that that's very interesting. Home blood test kit, home urinary test kit, and then a comprehensive exam a comprehensive physician exam kit. Uh, in the home for all the standard exams as well that is Bluetooth connected that gets the data, you know, that gets clinical grade data straight to the, the physician in real time who's examining it on a telehealth basis. So really interesting stuff. Yeah. So for our well, audience, any, any other questions? Well, and for I, I, Alfred, I don't have any reaction to two, that or other ideas? Two things I want to mention. Um, unfortunately, I've, I've been searching for the, the other company and I'm going to have to come up with it later for you. But uh, one of the things to be aware of is that TitoCare um, is essentially owned by Best Buy. So it, to me, mm -hmm. is one of those big indicators about how the retailers are getting into healthcare, um, and and mm -hmm. they're getting it, uh, you know, getting a good good door into that. Uh, there are others out there. Um, other than than TitoCare, there are competitors out there. There's a new one that's arrived in the last couple of years that's doing really, really well. It's a company out of Miami, and I cannot 
cannot come up with the name, but know that there are other really good kids. And, and these things include the ability to do otoscope. So if you've got, you know, if you think your kid has an ear infection, you can actually have the doctor examine your kid's ear remotely um, and save everybody the trip to the doctor and sit in the waiting, out, waiting room with all the other sick kids. Um, it, it, huge benefit to these kinds of kids. And, and Best Buy, so I'm fascinated by their play uh, to, um, you know, to offer these kinds of products and services. And there was a terrible Wall Street joke about Best Buy, that Best Buy was becoming Amazon's showroom. Um, so yep. people would, you know, go into Best Buy, check out a product. Oh, I like this. I'll buy it off of Amazon. Maybe I can get, maybe I'll buy it off of Amazon off of my um, smartphone in their store while the sales rep who helped me is watching me. Um, you know, uh, and they, they want to avoid that fate and they've got to do something that Amazon can't do. And they have this giant footprint of big stores, you know, where, where Americans live. Uh, and so how do they go beyond that? And part of their answer is offering services like their Geek Squad service, for example. Another part would be selling to older Americans, uh, maybe stuff that they, they want to try before they buy, and they're not as willing to buy it off of Amazon, for example. So it makes total sense for them to get into digital health and age tech. Um, uh, and then, intriguingly, they actually have um, uh, employees who do truck rolls. They have the Geek Squad people who are showing up people's homes, walking in their home, fixing their Wi-Fi router. Um, maybe they could adjust their, um, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, their uh, CGM system while, yeah. <laughs> while they're in their home. They, they could do the Taito care exam. They could uh, replace the battery on their um, uh, on their heart device uh, while they're in the home or something. Uh, uh, but if they have um, these, uh, you know, a geeks, presumably an employee of Geek Squad already is very good at following instructions, um, and so. Uh, they can be the, the the employee who shows up in the home and, and helps that last step uh, with the product that requires following the instructions. So no. I found it. The the other company that people might want to check in check into is called Medwand. M E D W A N D. So um, I might even be able to copy a link and put it in the chat. There you go. I think that's, I think that'll do it. So anyway, um, yeah, you, you mentioned age tech. That's one of the huge uh, low hanging fruit uh, areas that uh, there's a lot of room for competition. No, very, nobody's found the, well, first of all, every family's different and every need is different, but nobody's found the secret sauce that that works and one of the things that makes me crazy is that the home security the adts and you know the, those kinds of companies should have this market sewed up they've got the sensors they got the information they know what's going on in the house they should be able to do fall detection they should be able to you know be able to get help if you know if, if an elderly patient you know an aging in place uh, person is, is is having difficulty. It should be able to monitor their daily activities and be able to help you use and be able to use AI to detect deterioration, either cognitive or physical decline. I I, that, I don't. I guess they're making enough money 
in just the straight security play, that they don't need it. <laughs> but it, it puzzles me why they, they're not involved. So um, to circle back to sort of our a variation on our original question, um, you know, uh, there's there's new sensors. The new sensors get bound up into new overall technologies and products, and they get placed before the public early at the Consumer Electronics Show every year. And then finally, we see products launched and products beginning to get traction. Um, you know, I remember when activity trackers, you know, went from a novelty that to getting real traction uh, in the population, and now they're a well understood category um, that has regular large large regular sales per year. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, wh what do you think is getting traction? What do you think? It, or, and more valuable than that, what do you think is on the verge of getting traction? So, uh, so again, the sensor has to deliver information that has value that you can act on that's going to going to create a benefit. It, 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 good, you know, nice to know isn't going to sell stuff. The bigger thing is that you have established products in the fitness tracker, in the smartwatch category. Um, they already have a established uh, retail outlet chains. You know, they, they, they've already got customers. And it's much harder to bring a new product in to that setting, especially if it's a single function. Right now, these trackers and smartwatches, which by the way, I don't see a whole lot of difference between, um, the, the way for them to compete now, they have two choices. They can add features and they can lower price. And that's where I think the sensors are, are going, to, going to come into play. Um, SpO2, the, uh, the blood oxygenation level in your bloodstream was really important during COVID because that was one of the early indicators that you, you know, you might have COVID that you might be, you might have, uh, have bigger problems coming and get early treatment can help, could help, uh, ward some of that off. People aren't going to buy another wristband just to track their SpO2. But if Fitbit adds SpO2 to an existing product, which, which they have done, that's going to make it more attractive. It's, it, it's an add-on. It's a, a value add. And so I think the new sensors are going to be more about riding along with existing products rather than be a new product coming out. And that's why I think uh, some of these startups that take the avenue, uh, Valencell is one of my favorites. They've, they've been around for a long time. Um, they're essentially a pure licensing play. And I think that's the future for a lot of these startups is to establish the, the, the technology, but then license that, that in a way that it can be used in the companies that are already building tens of millions of units and selling them. Uh, the low hanging fruit for me is the ear. Um, Again, I mentioned Valencell. Uh, it, I don't know if you're aware, but Jabra earbuds, they have mm -hmm. versions of them that will measure your heartbeat um, from the, the earbuds that you're wearing while you're exercising. That's heartbeat is that's Valencell's technology. And um, so they've been in there for years and they've been licensing their technology and even creating modules that can be integrated into products for customers. They've been doing that for, for years. The big news from them in the last 
uh, in the last year, year and a half, is they have a technology that will do blood pressure um, without a pressure cuff. They have a, in order to prove that, you know, there's, that the technology works, they've actually gone ahead and, and created a, a, a product that looks like a, a pulse ox clamp that you just put on your finger. And it, it uses LEDs, it uses PPG uh, sensors and can measure your, your blood pressure. And the kicker is it can do it without having to calibrate it first with a pressure cuff, um, which is huge. I mean, that's a, 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 an enormous development. Know that if you're, if you are, are saying that you can measure blood pressure, then you've got a medical device and it has to be FDA cleared. So if somebody's selling you something that says, oh yeah, we can measure your blood pressure, but it's not FDA cleared, um, they're either gonna get in trouble or you know, they're, they're, they're gonna have problems with that because that, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but, uh, but it turns out the ear is a really good place for, for biosensors because it's fairly stationary. It's not going to slip around like something on your wrist can do. Um, doesn't get bounced around and stuff. You know, the head is, is pretty stationary. And so blood pressure, heart rate, you know, um, blood oxygenation, there's a lot of things you could do. And, and, and certainly there's the fitness people who are going to be wearing the earbuds while they're exercising and all. But the huge market are people who are wearing hearables and hearing aids, people who need to wear them anyway for the improved hearing. But what a bonus. It's also going to track your health. It's going to do your steps. It's going to do your blood pressure. It's going to do all these things while you're wearing the one device that you put in. And again, I, I say like it disappears. You put it in your ear, you forget about it. Um, so uh, to me, that's one of the big lower hanging fruit opportunities is more sensors in the ear. So that's that for our uh, innovator audience. That's kind of bad news, I would say, if if they're looking for a sensor, you know, to sort of ride into the market with that, they're going to have to do a licensing deal with um you know, with one of the incumbents who sort of owns the ear or, or owns the wrist or something, uh, as opposed to, you know, it's not a free for all. It's, it's not the wild west before the introduction of barbed wire unfortunately, anymore. It's, unfortunately. it's too late, too late to come up. It's way too late to come up with a single function device. I, I don't care how, what form factors, sticker, wrist, ear, where, you know, wherever it might be. Um, unless you've got a really big benefit single functions not really not going to rise above the noise and i i remember when aura came out uh, you know a new form factor for the ring and i i was not optimistic i thought that it's uh, that the wrist is so easy uh, and the ring is going to be not as good a device and lower battery life uh, yep. and they seem to have made it though there's there seems to be a market you, that likes their their aura you, ring you and can it's, it's you can thank the nba for that the, the NBA, I don't know if you know, but the NBA adopted it as a COVID detection system. Um, mm -hmm. they, they used it as an early warning system to detect when a player might have uh, developed COVID. And that helped put them on the map for, for a lot of people. But they're not the only ring. 
the other thing, you know, there are other other rings out there uh, with with some competitive advantages. But again, it they're all multifunction. They all do a lot more than just track your sleep or, you know, measure your heart rate. So for our audience, any last questions? Uh, and for um, for Alfred, just any more, you know, uh, kind of um, innovative technologies, products, uh, uh, and also products you see that are going to get, that you think are going to get traction. So, so we've gone 80 minutes and I don't think we've said AI yet. Artificial intelligence is, it is not the reason for a company to be successful, but it is an element that I believe has the potential to be huge success. Again, we've got these devices gathering reams of data just enormous amounts of information that's just noise. And we're discovering correlations thanks to machine learning systems and AI. We're able to infer all kinds of stuff that we never could have before. SPO2 is a perfect example. Um, you know, it, it's not easy. It's, you know, you just don't plug the numbers in, turn the crank and something comes out. But for the the really smart people who are developing these AI systems, I would say focus on the devices that are already producing the information and find out what else you could discover from that information, because that can be really useful. One of the perfect examples of fitness trackers is that they are able to help predict the, ons, the, the, the progression of disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, can do gait analysis from from the wrist, which is hugely important. So that kind of big chronic disease problem that you could solve using data that's already available, I think that's a great opportunity. That's interesting. And I'll, I'll mention two companies I think are doing good work in this area. So one of them is, is Livongo, uh, which has a product for, for diabetes, typically bought by employers and provisioned to employees, and which was acquired by Teladoc. Uh, and Livongo, I think did some pioneering work here in um, basic AI um, uh, interpretation and coaching. Um, so if you're monitoring if you're monitoring your diabetes, you're putting in information like blood glucose level, step count, maybe even sleep, for example. Um, uh, blood glucose history often done on a, on a point basis, not a continuous basis with, with Lobongo's Bane products because it's for healthy diabetics, not for very sick diabetics. Uh, and um, they, you know, it gives you advice like, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if you got some exercise uh, right now? It's interpreting all these data points, which it would have taken literally pencil and paper and looking up tables and who wants to do that, you know? Uh, and it's taking all this data and it's just giving you a bottom line or alternately, hey, you can't, can I have dessert? Yes, you can have dessert, um, uh, you know, and uh, that would have taken a calculation in the past. Um, and so, and uh, interestingly, they actually, they call their platform the AI, AI platform. So they didn't want anyone to miss right. it, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, and that, that was, uh, and so they somehow they got away with that. Uh, you know, they, they, they probably should have brought in a you know a brand manager to think about that branding. But uh, nevertheless, that was their platform. And then also interesting is Inside Tracker, which will have you go to you know a conventional Quest or other um, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, a test center and have a, uh, have a standard significant blood draw and then analyze that information from your blood and give you all kinds of information about uh, health optimization. So this is, this is a product not for the, the well diabetic, uh, but rather this is a product for the athlete or the human optimization person or the longevity person who's noticing things like I have a history of iron deficiency that's not going to show up in any kind of illness, but nevertheless, I want to think about the long-term future and I want to, I want to address that iron deficiency um, or, you know, that there's an optimal diet for me. And so this is, you know, these are reports that are written, you know, not by people writing reports based on their knowledge and history, but rather their machine written reports customized to your blood test results um, by an AI agent that's, that's uh, you know, that's following rules-based algorithms, that, that sort of thing. So two interesting companies in, in, in that space. I think that's a, that's a model for, um, you know, if you can't be the sensor, the new sensor company, you can't be the new, the, the risk form factor company, you could nevertheless be the AI coach, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that uses that data. Yeah. And, and I want to just tag on there. To me, the modern miracle is we are seeing type two diabetes reversals, um, which is, is, is stunning. Um, and it's largely through CBT. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and other kinds of AI driven guidance to, to help lifestyle changes, diet changes, that kind of thing that, that can actually turn diabetes around for, for some patients. That's great. Well, good. So I think we uh, have run out of time, uh, but thank you so much, Alfred, for joining us and sharing your, your insights as you have, been marinating in the consumer tech sector uh, for for decades, um, uh, and um, uh, so very much. Thank you, thank you for joining oh, us. My pleasure. I, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Um, many thanks to our guest Alfred Poor. Um, you can find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is Stephen Wardell. Um, uh, and we'll see you next time, next week, when our guest is Stephen Howe. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur in digital health. Uh, and he's talking about um, putting generative AI to work in your business. So see you next week, next Wednesday for that show. Thank you. And thanks all.